Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Today, there is an exciting episode with Hunt Priest and Jessica Felix Romero. I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, about them and then get some housekeeping details and get started. So in this episode of The Sacred Speaks podcast, we explore the potential of the Christian church as a sanctuary for psychedelic healing. Our guests, Hunt Priest and Jessica Felix Romero, seek to reconnect the worlds of psychedelics and organized religion. Addressing the misinformation that has driven them apart for the past 50 years, they assert that the church must prioritize healing and work to rectify the damage caused by this discontent. And it's a cool episode, calling it Psychedelic Christians. And um, I now want to introduce you to Hunt through his bio and Jessica. Hunt Priest is a priest in the Episcopal Church and the founding executive director of Ligare, a Christian psychedelic society, a nonprofit network of Christian leaders educating themselves and those they lead about the intersection of open-hearted Christianity and the psychedelic renaissance. A participant in a psilocybin study in early 2016, he had two life-changing mystical experiences under the care of a research team. His encounter with psilocybin opened him to the healing and consciousness-raising power of psychedelic medicines and changed the landscape of his work. Hunt believes the healing power of psychedelics should be in the toolkits of all who are healers of bodies, minds, and souls, and can't wait to be part of the providing legal, safe access for guiding experience in a Christian setting. In April 2021, Hunt took an extended break from a full-time parish ministry to expand his priesthood out into the emerging psychedelic landscape. Jessica Felix Romero has over 16 years of experience in social justice advocacy, organizing, and communications. With a doctorate in conflict analysis and resolution, she integrates holistic systems analysis and transformative design to help nonprofits advance social change. She is vice president and chief strategy and impact officer at Sojourners, a faith-inspired nonprofit that works with Christians to put their faith into action in the passionate pursuit of social justice, peace, and environmental stewardship. Jessica loves all things about food and spirituality. Her pioneering doctoral research in El Salvador documents the transformational possibilities of conflict resolution-oriented food systems that feed people and nurture peace. She's a student of somatic writing and practitioner of embodied leadership. Her current work explores the intersection of spirituality, ancestral wisdom, psychedelics, and Christianity. It's a great conversation. Thank you both, Hunt and Jessica, for participating. And uh, it was so informative and especially great to put the two words Christian and psychedelic together. Uh, so to some housekeeping details, I'd of course like you all to know about a class I'm teaching at the Jung Center. As you know, the Jung Center is one of my favorite places, and I'm going to find here somewhere. So the class, sorry for the delay, class is called Promethean Visions, Unraveling the Psyche Through Myth, Religion, and Psychedelics. It's four Wednesdays at the Jung Center. You can reach that at younghouston.org here in Houston, June 7th through 28th. Um, 6 to 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Um, it's Join us for an illuminating exploration of myth, religion, and the burgeoning field of psychedelic-assisted therapies. Delving into the myth of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods will engage with the idea that the healing power of psychedelics must be approached with reverence, mindfulness, and respect for their sacred nature. Drawing on Carl Jung's groundbreaking insights into the human psyche as well as contemporary research on psychedelics, and the mystical experience they can evoke, we will investigate the importance of integrating sacred and religious paradigms into psychedelic-assisted therapy. 
Together, we will engage in thought-provoking discussions and activities that will help us understand the role of psychedelics in modern spirituality and mental health, and embark on a journey to discover the profound insights and transformative power hidden within the Promethean myth and the world of psychedelic-assisted therapies. Uh, Another few series of cool episodes coming out. Next week, I'll release an episode with Deborah Mouton, where we talk about her book, Black Chameleon. And then the following week will be an interview with Rachel Harris, where we talk about her book, Swimming in the Sacred. Got a lot of great stuff coming up next month. Uh, Mary Casamano from Johns Hopkins. Uh, We've got Thomas Moore, James Hollis. And I am so eager to get into that. So a couple other updates. Eslin, we've got a a week booked at Eslin in October on Ecstatic Experience Music and Young's Red Book. Um, That's a repeat from our earlier um, workshop in March, late February, early March. Uh, so check them out at eslin.org. Uh, as always, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative uh, practice that my wife and I created here in Houston. Check us out at thecenter4has.com. Then the music of the podcast is created by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And the song is Clouds, which I love. And also check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. And I think that does it as far as updates are concerned. A lot going on. You're going to be getting a lot of episodes. And also, uh, yeah, a lot of episodes coming out. Great interviews. Looking forward to the next few months. I'll keep the uh, material pumping. And, uh, and thanks for being here. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for your engagement. Please share. Please share all that, uh, all that you can and desire to. Uh, that's how the organic growth is spread. So thank you for your support. Thank you for being here. And enjoy the episode. For now, we'll leave it there. So we are here. Uh, Hunt and Jessica, I, uh, I, I'm eager for you guys to introduce yourselves. And we've already been getting into a, a spirited conversation. Jessica, you're bringing a fire that I... <laughs> that I really like and I'm excited about. So, um, and, and it, just so you know, as the listener if, out there, um, it's difficult for me every time I meet with folks because there's so much juice in our like introductory conversations before we hit record. So we're already a little high off this and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where we go. So um, Jessica Felix Romero and Hunt Priest, I'm glad to have you guys here. I want you to introduce yourself, let everybody know what y'all are up to. And, uh, and then we'll kind of dive into our conversation. And Hunt, why do you start? Just let folks know. Sure, sure. Uh, Hunt Priest, I live in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, it's confusing because, because my name is the same as my vocation or job. I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church. It's very confusing to people, but it is actually my name. Uh, I was ordained at 40, so second career. I served churches in Austin, Atlanta, Seattle, and now Savannah, Georgia, where we live. Um, I, uh, when I lived in Seattle, I was part of a research study uh, with clergy and psilocybin, part of some ongoing research about mental health and uh, the power of healing with psychedelics. And that was in 2016. And uh, two years ago, I decided it was time to take a break from parish work, not to leave it, but to take a break from it, to keep my ordination as a priest intact and work in this arena of networking and educating Christians and the general public about the healing potential and spiritual growth potential 
of safe and legal use of psychedelics. I had an incredible, I was given an incredible gift to be part of that study, had transformative experiences that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. And I want that available to as many people, to anyone that wants it and is a good candidate for it. And uh, moving into new territory. And I'm so, I think the Christian tradition and practice and ritual and community has a place in this conversation. So that's why I'm here. Hot and and quickly, I know, uh, Ligare was a, a a name that that uh, that occurred a couple of times in the podcast. Michael Winkleman mentioned your work, and then uh, Bill Barnard uh, mentioned your work, and so then to connect with you in this way is really exciting because our lives are really interwoven. And then Thank you've you. introduced me to a, a fireball of spirit in Jessica. <laughs> now, Jessica, would you take a couple of minutes and let everyone know who you are? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Dr. Yeah. Jessica Felix Romero. Um, I am just delighted to hear having this conversation. I kind of come to the space. I'm located in Leesburg, Virginia, which is the land of the Monahoic peoples. And I um, have been on a quest um, for quite some time. I've been working around faith groups. I have a doctorate in conflict analysis and resolution. So I really come to this work with a heart for peace building, justice work. I've worked formally in my career over 20 years now in social justice movements, both in the labor movement and then um, doing farm worker rights, food, sustainability, peace building, helping do trauma healing, post-war contexts. Then all of a sudden I kind of came to this moment of understanding how could um, the church become more vital in the world today. I was sort of doing it outside in the nonprofit world and really looking at the power of narrative and communications and um, how we can motivate people to do things. And I had a home practice of having a group of people I met with and going to a church. And yet that wasn't where I was doing my social justice work. And I found that most of the time it wasn't really welcomed when I was in social justice spaces. And so I moved into a second part of my career of sort of saying, how could we actually show up as people of faith, as good neighbors to social justice movements and really have these conversations to ourselves? How do we reflect? on where the church is as an institution and how we are as communities and really diversifying the church experience. So I love working with Hunt. I am um, the board chair of Ligare. And, um, you know, so he, we have Hunt as sort of the, the master of the, the pew, you know, the pulpit. And I'm the sort of the rabble rouser in the pew. I want to ask the questions. <laughs> I want to know what's happening. I want to challenge the idea of where power and where the authority of our own spiritual lives comes from. So um, I'm kind of a mix of, I love the traditional um, church and the structure um, and the spaces that it's given me to grow and the tools it's given me. And I want to see it expand. I want it to be at its flourishing best. And I know that happens when we center um, all of the lived experiences that is possible. So I come to the work both in psychedelics in that space. Um, I was sort of, I took a formal role in leadership in the faith movement, in the Christian space movement. I work in an organization called Sojourners, and they work at the intersection of faith, culture and politics. So you can imagine I have a lot of experience doing a work in, and sort of how to have people who are of faith Christians or people who have a Christian heritage may have left the church, but they grew up with these ideas and they grew up with this orientation and they still care about social justice and want to find a bridge. So um, I do a lot of that bridge building work through our work at Sojourners. And um, 
And in that moment, I found that there weren't a lot of female leaders. I was kind of one of the few. Um, and at the time, I was looking at very different types of leadership that was possible. And um, I was experiencing a very specific type of um, probably would call traditional male dominated faith leadership. And I wanted to bring something different. And so I started studying embodied leadership, um, started exploring the divine feminine. And in that path, I um, came across and was able to be um, held in a container where I first um, was able to uh, ingest and work with uh, sacred plant medicines. And that was over six years ago now. And it's been part of my ongoing spiritual practice. And I think one of the biggest surprises is that it's deepened my faith um, in a way that I didn't expect. Um, a lot of times I meet people and they feel like they're going sort of outside Christianity to have this experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm like, oh, no, this is what the deepest well, the deepest wells of your faith are like what you're going to be pulling on when you're in these liminal realms. And so I kind of sit at that nexus of bridging both what does leadership look like? What does embodied leadership look like? What does a vibrant socially just and orient church look like and what what do we have on um, our own individual spiritual development and how those can all flow together. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's great. This is fun. So this let's, fun. Uh, let's, let's dive in. And I think that um, the, maybe the first thing we need to talk about is, I don't know, when you two do these kinds of conversations, how do you like to start this? Because I want to start with the church, but then I mm -hmm. also feel like we need to start with experience, like what what we're talking about. So you, you guys guide us for a minute. Where, where do you tend to like to begin orienting people in this work that you're doing? Jessica, we can figure it out. I like talking about experience first, because I think yeah. I think that's where, that's, it's not just where the meat is, but that's where, I think that's where religion begins and our spiritual life begins is with our own experience. So let's Go start with that, with, Hunt. I love that. Yeah, okay. yeah, tell us about that, Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> no easy task, right? You're up. I'll talk about my experience uh, with, in mystical spaces and with mis mystical experiences, psychedelics being part of that yeah. in the beginning at 52. So um, eight years ago. So um, I've always been a bit sort of always kind of had that orientation. I think as a little kid, I would, I would not walk on plants because I felt like they were, they had, I knew they had lives and feelings. And so I've just always kind of, and I've seen, nature as i've always understood nature to be where god reveals god's self and i so i i was just kind of oriented that way anyway which i think makes sense that eventually one of the routes would be to ordination and trying to lead other people to that space so that was i went to seminary at 37 ordained at 40 because i had had these profound experiences in nature in church often in liturgy baptisms communion so uh so i went to seminary and was ordained and started working in the church and pretty quickly lost a lot of sense of mystical mysticism and mm -hmm. because it's an institution and it has to have a uh, structure and there has to be a plan and there has to be a vision and all that, which is important. But I, at leading a church community for uh, 12 years or so, my sense of the mystical and my, and frankly, my experiences of God began to diminish as I was mm. working to keep an institution up. The church was already in decline and uh, lots of people were finding their spirituality in other places, and there's just lots of pressure on clergy and church leaders, not just clergy, but church leaders. So that's where I was, and I saw an ad in Christian Century for a study uh, involving religious professionals of all traditions. And I thought, why in the world would I not do that? So I applied, was accepted, 
within three months, I was uh, with two guides at a research institution and given over the course of a month, two different doses of psilocybin and had very profound religious experiences. One was a very Pentecostal experience of speaking in tongues and my an energetic flow in my body uh, and the laying on of hands by one of my guides, which just escalated the energy that was in my body. Mm -hmm. And after that, after that six hour session, this uh, pretty big ball of anxiety that I've been carrying around was gone. I realized the next morning it was so much worse. I realized after it was gone. So both a, a very Pentecostal experience, which is unusual for an Episcopal priest, not unheard of, but unusual, had that and then uh, had a healing because of mm -hmm. something I'd done a million times, which is to lay hands on people, I was open. The psilocybin opened me to many experiences. And then the second time a month later, I had the completion of my ordination to the priesthood. I say at the feet of the universe. So uh, beyond the experience of at the feet of the bishop in an Episcopal church, but out in this very cosmic way, prayerfully and submitting myself to it in a way that I hadn't done the first round of ordination. I submit, submitted myself to God and the universe in a whole new way. And so very religious experiences, um, very Christian experiences. Not everyone has those, but I did. And uh, and I, like I said a minute ago, I want that available to everyone that is open to it and is a candidate for it. There's some, there are some contraindications, but I think this is available, should be available to as many people that want it and are uh, healthy. So I got a question here, because as you're talking, I'm projecting onto people out there watching, which is, holy shit, this guy in a collar is talking about psilocybin. And and I then I'm thinking, like, why is that weird? So, you know, because as is when we three were talking earlier and I was sharing how um, this workshop that uh, I just led with a colleague, Rodney Waters, what we were really looking at is how every institutionalized religion has at its core some ecstatic religious experience, we could say, mm -hmm. and then the institutions formed around that experience. So the fact that it's weird or odd or seems out of place for a clergy member to be talking about taking a substance to meet or connect with God, why, why do you think that's weird? What do you say about that? I don't know. Well, I think, I think it's 50 years of bad information around psychedelics. That's part of it. Politicized, yeah. terrible unscientific information about psychedelics so there's that and i think the healing it's documented and the church must care about healing even if it's nothing mm -hmm. else the church has to care about healing. Mm -hmm. amen to that I think, and in christianity not all parts of christianity but in most christian communities and most christian communions we do and we do ingest a substance we ingest bread and wine into our bodies to have an encounter with god and that's it's forgotten and mm -hmm. we don't do a great job of making that connection for people but our the christian tradition is based on an ingestion of a substance <laughs> unless you're methodist a mind-altering substance so yeah. i mean in enough quantity wine you know that's so it shouldn't be and yet the subtitle of ligari is a christian psychedelic society and i frankly picked that for one reason because it's provocative yeah and you don't see those words together so that's part of that's part of what we're trying to wake people up to to it and to normalize it. I mean, I I don't wear my collar all the time, but when I'm talking about this, I do because this is not outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, even though people might think it is. 
Yeah, that's a good sentence right there to hang on to. This is not outside the bounds of, yes, yeah, agreed. Well, Jessica, why don't you dive into that? Talk a little bit about your the experiential dimension of this, mm -hmm. and, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about your relationship and how you work together and what you're trying to do, what your objectives are, uh, and then we'll see where we go from there. Right. Yeah. I'll just say right now, I always seeing Hunt on a screen talking with the caller talking about this always is an encouragement to me. It is like, it does yeah. something to me and my lived experience. I just go like, oh. <laughs> like, right. And I think that often we don't, we don't um, give clergy the freedom to explore their own lives. Um, as I, someone, you know, at Sojourners formally, uh, you know, I, I great multi-million dollar, you know, programs where we're, we're doing capacity building for, for clergy and on a topic or for themselves or what clergy, what's clergy renewal these days and what is the thing? And we often don't allow that they're having their own experience. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Hunt is both representing to me at this moment when I see him, this is how, what I project, see him as the church and like, ah, that positive male leadership. There is something wonderful about, you know, someone that's in a collar and talking about what I think is a justice issue. And I celebrate seeing Hunt as a clergy person doing his work and having his exploration, um, because that's what we want. We want to be able, um, when we're vulnerable and we go to a clergy person or a healer, we want to know that they are in solidarity with us. We want to know that they're a real person, that they have gone through something, right? And so being able to have the fullness of experiences. I want Hunt to have joy, and I want him to have gone through suffering um, and, and been mm -hmm. on the other side of that. And so I think there's that too, where sometimes we don't um, we only look to the clergy to hold the institution and the law, um, and they're embodied people, and we want them to have a flexibility and ability to grow. And so a lot of my work at Sojourners is about how do we revitalize the church by revitalizing those who hold up that institution. Um, and so hmm. this is part of that. So my sideline on how great it is to look at Hunt. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a therapy on many levels. But um, my sort of faith journey... Um, I grew up um, going to sort of a, a Baptist-style church. I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but my parents are both from El Salvador. Um, so I'm a very first generation. Um, so I grew up definitely still in that very first generation immigrant experience. And um, we went to a Baptist church. It was predominantly white. I had a good basis of you know understanding the Bible. Um, we left that church when I was about 14. We went to more of a charismatic church, and then I ended up in a Pentecostal church. So I've had a bit of the experience, a little bit of the spectrum of um, both Christian experiences and theologies and doctrines. And um, and so I have, like Hunt, I had a, a sensitivity, I think, to God since I was young. Um, as I just said, I have a I have a very beautiful relationship with my mother named Blanca, and she has a big, big faith. Um, she had a really, um, she was orphaned when she was three and she really lived her life dependent on God as her parent. Um, and so I grew up hearing about a God that was as big as the cosmos, but as specific as she had nothing to eat and guided her to a tree to find a banana, you know? And so I grew up in this idea of that God was so big and yet was so individual and knew each of us. So I really appreciated getting the, the foundation of understanding what this Christian uh, faith path meant. And yet I had this squirrely, like there's an independent lived experience. There's something that's unique about you and God um, that, that only you 
can create by accept, accepting that invitation. And it's an invitation. So I had the both, like the individual and exploring and an institutional. So that was really sort of my faith background coming in. Um, as I was saying, I was uh, working more formally as a faith leader about five or six years ago, and I hit a bit of a dry patch. Um, I was in a job and I was like, this seems really perfect on paper. I'm like, you know, influencing the church. I'm helping people talk about their faith. You know, I'm doing things. And I was like, and I'm, I'm kind of dry inside. Um, something has happened and that had never happened. I had never had that contraction in my life. I always really enjoyed my faith. And I was like, oh, something's happening here. So that's when I started looking about embodied leadership, the divine feminine, and it was introduced um, into the uh, sacred plant traditions. Um, and for me, it's been, I'd say, almost six years, and it's definitely part of my own spiritual practice. I am very fortunate that I have the ability to travel and participate in uh, circles, and so it is part of my um, spiritual life now um, pretty consistently for the past six years. I also, in my very first ceremony, had a, a very big opening um, to, uh, to, to the divine. Um, I... Uh, I had had a mystical experience when I was 26, long before um, all of this work. Um, and it was, as some would say, would say spontaneous. Um, and I was, interestingly enough, I had been at a, a weekend where I was doing racial justice work and I was doing racial justice training. It was the very first time I was really leaning into that work and I had a spontaneous sort of mystical experience similar to sort of Thomas Merton, even though I had no idea who Thomas Merton was mm -hmm. yet. Um, you know, and I, the world glowed. I, for three days, saw everything was shimmering in golden light. I just like tears running down my face. Um, and it was that sort of from the the, the, the text uh, in Psalms. It was like in Psalm 23, it was like my cup overflows. It was just this feeling of overflow of joy. And it lasted about three days. And it, it was significant. Um, and yet I didn't sort of fully integrate it into my life. I didn't, my life didn't spot like change dramatically at that point. I was still on my working on my dissertation, building a career, it pretty much stayed the same, but it was something that definitely left an impression. So then when I had, you know, um, my first experience with the plants, which would have been, you know, um, almost 40, you know, I was 40, almost turning 40 at that time. So a good chunk of time between, I definitely met the divine again. And I had this deep swelling in the moment of, um, I had this sort of what I know um, from my sort of Pentecostal experience, what I call the the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's this this quiet voice in my heart, um, and I, you know I saw a beautiful crystalline light. I felt this prompting in my spirit, and um, I had asked going in what was my sacred vocation. That was my sort of intention going in, and um, sort of that soft voice I heard was, "You are the embodiment of abundance." Hmm. And in my head, even though I was in for the first time, this, this liminal realm, back in the back of my mind, I heard the scripture from John 10, 10, where Christ Jesus says, I come to give you life so that you can live it more abundantly. And in that moment, I realized I was tracking something. I was having this experience beyond anything I'd ever had. And yet I still had the ability to pull into and connect to a sacred te text and make sense of what I was feeling. And my entire body, every cell, my body was in abundance and overflowing. That was an absolutely new North experience for me. And what it did is I like, I was like, oh my goodness, this is who I am. I could feel myself in my body for the first time. And it gave me a radical 
radical love for me. I'd been very used to, you know, fighting for justice, advocating for others, showing up for my family, but I didn't love probably myself as radically as I loved and stood for others. In that moment of feeling my body come online, so to speak, and that abundance and saying, that's what you are. I was like, whew, I'm never gonna violate that. It gave me a way of being like, I was able to start putting myself first in a very healthy way. Um, and that sort of opened the door to continue. I said, I wanna know more about this, this work and I continue to sort of do that. And so as I said in my intro, I found that it's deepened my faith. For me, it's opened up a lot of understanding the energetics of Christianity. I have a really good Bible foundation from all those church days and Sunday school. I had a lived experience of working in community and trying to serve um, both as a church and serve the church. Um, but a lot of um, Richard Rohr, who you recently had on, um, he has this amazing book called The Immortal Diamond, which I read about two or three experiences in that talks about the true self and the false self and the energetics of Christianity and gave me a language to understand, oh yes, this is this is part of this tradition. I just hadn't tapped in and I didn't have the lived experience of it yet. So it really opened up for me the ability that um, uh, that there could be more dimensions to the Christianity and really brought me into understanding my faith through my body. Um, theologically, we have an incarnational, we have an embodied path, um, but I hadn't experienced that um, until I began um, engaging with the the, um, the psychedelic world and understand, oh, and sort of brought everything sort of alive and things lined up in a really unique way for me. I, I, I yeah. see you, hon. You know? <laughs> I just think I want to just real quickly piggyback on what Jessica said about the incarnational theology and this yeah. embodiment. Christianity at its core is about it is God being living in a human body. That's basic Christian theology. And yet over time, Christianity, the only part of the body that we really engage is the brain and only yes. a small part of that. So that I think one of the one of the things Jessica and I share is this return to our bodies through the opening that's like whatever psychedelics does in the brain opened us up to our bodies and opened mm -hmm. us up to the presence of in the presence of the Holy Spirit and God moving in our bodies that that is and I think we're so just most of us are so disassociated from our bodies mm -hmm. for, for various reasons Christianity's been that's been part of the problem with Christianity is it's this distrust of the body that some of some of Paul not all that gets sown in Paul a little bit mm -hmm. and then it just became all about sin and it just misses the point it misses the point of what Jesus was trying to do mm -hmm. by, in the incarnation and mm -hmm. the and the and the and the resurrection it's about the body yeah I, yeah I and i think for me it was often like the body ended up being like the body of christ and it's the body ended up that word ended up thinking to me became the institution so it wasn't me body like in that context body became the institution or body became flesh which wasn't necessarily the best context for it and so a lot of when i was first you know two years into to this work you know i i was thinking what are the three areas that have changed in my in my life as the cause of this, you know, as the result of this work. And I was like, my flesh, faith, and freedom. I was like, the three Fs, my body, you know, the, my understanding of what the flesh was, the understanding of what my faith was, and the understanding of what real freedom was for myself. Like, that was the beginning, you know. And so, yeah, this idea of like, I love that. I think now I say, I have a fleshy faith, you know, I have a fleshy, this lived body experience. And I think that, um, it's important to, to have that vitality for me, my my soul, my expression, 
of, of my, my, the type of devotional heart that my soul longs to express needed that. And I didn't know it. I didn't know that I was really happy with my faith. I was really happy psychologically. I wasn't, you know, I had a contraction that like this job is sort of doing something to me, but it was sort of a, a healthy, balanced way of reflecting, is this job the right fit for me? But I was like, there was a whole other dimension, a whole other level that um, that was ushered in when I sort of said yes. And saying yes was, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, you know, I, I discerned for a while. I took three months. I was involved in prayer and meditation about it. And um, in my own faith language, you know, I remember when I, you know, was about to, you know, I received the I was in a capsule and when I received the capsule to to take, you know, I had it in my hand and I looked down and I said, you know, to me in my language, it's God. I said, God, there's nowhere that I can go as a result of ingesting this that you will not be there. You know, we have lots of examples in scripture. It's like, I can be at the bottom of the pits. I can be here and you can find me, right? David, you know, all of these sort of things. And then it was like, I was like, all right, if, if all those things are true, now's the time to believe it. Yes, there's nowhere that I can go right now that you're not going to be. That gave me the ability to soften and surrender, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where this idea of where does Christianity and um psychedelic spiritual development or plant medicine practices come together, it's that flow between. It's actually the moment where you can apply what you believe and see, and it allows you to surrender, right? For my Pentecostal experiences, I do have it, and I did was baptized in the Holy Spirit and did, a, did develop a prayer language, right? So I know how to sort of release, to feel something else present and allow it to come through. Right. So when I had that first experience, it was not a strange realm to me. It was not somewhere that I was like, I don't know what's going on. And I didn't have a fear triggered. I was like, ah, I know this place. This is actually a place that when I'm in church and at my most filled and I feel the, the, the presence of God, this is actually where my soul goes. There was a familiarity. And I think that surprised me. I didn't have particular thoughts about it. But when I reflected on it, I was like, that you know that how somehow my church trained me for my my um psychedelic experiences but a, <laughs> a contrast just like we're talking about hunt you know huh i don't see that getting to learn to pray in the spirit is great practice to learn how to navigate a psychedelic uh, journey yeah. who knew i have 30 different ways we can go right now <laughs> And all of them seem exciting to me. Uh, but one of the things that comes to mind when when I talk to folks about this, and thank you both for being here and opening this conversation up. Uh, I, Jessica, I want to just hold these three ideas real quick because I want to return to them and I want to say them right now. Um, em embodied leadership, divine feminine, and sacred plant medicine. I want to return to that because I, I want to... You obviously have a, a, a lot of um, flexibility with how you can navigate that territory, and so I want to get into that. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that occurs to me before we do that is that there's there's always some problem. I mean, there's there's something, every time I talk to folks about psychedelics or healing, they're, they're going to position this argument that says, well, we, we've lost something. And and Hunt, you, you've, you've talked about this, Jessica, you've mentioned this, that, that the body... Uh, is not really present in Christianity. And so what are your thoughts around what this movement, we can say, or what this recollection of these er earlier practices from antiquity, certainly, that are bursting forth in our modern container, 
What, what do you think these are addressing in our psyches, in our collective? Mm. You know, for me, I can, um, I think it, it's this ability to express yourself. I think, as I shared, I, this ability to understand the body is an ability to um, begin, for me, it was beginning a radical path of self-love that I didn't, I didn't have a, um, a way to, of understanding that before. Uh, I think what's really came alive for me um, in understanding the embodiment was that I was feeling it. I wasn't thinking it. There's this ability of under, of being um, beyond words and someone who has spent a lot of time studying, a lot of time convincing people, a lot of time designing interventions in society to make good. Uh, it got me out of my mind in the way that I was able to come in and really hear my own heart, really hear my own direction. Um, what was also very powerful to me is that it opened up um, abilities and a knowing that was beyond my education, beyond my um, faith and indoctrination or my faith teaching, right? All of a sudden I had a deeper knowing of things. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly as I shared as um, a Latina woman, all of a sudden I had this moment of understanding what it meant to decolonize Christianity. I had never had that moment appear in my life um, before. And um, Hunt, I'll tell a little bit of our story um, because it was, I think it's a really beautiful one. Uh, Hunt and I were working together and uh, he asked me um, if I wanted to um, host a forum talking about these topics in Spanish. And I was like, and I, so I thought about it and uh, I was sort of like, let me get back to you. And I wrestled with it. And I realized that I wanted to say no. Now, before I would have probably like stressed myself out and been like, I'll prepare and I'll make it happen. And I was really busy. I thought, no, my body was saying something, right? So that's a new thing. My body was a no and I was listening to it, right? So that's part of the trust that you build in these, in these plant, in these psychedelic spaces. So you have to learn to trust the body and the spirit and what, how it's communicating to you. So I, my body now trusts me that if it says no, I'm going to listen versus I would kind of override it in the past a bit more, to be honest. And, um, and I was like, oh, why does this feel like a no to me? And I realized that particularly when I'm talking about these topics, um, the plant and Christianity, I'm not necessarily talking just for my brainy part. It's not the academic me that's showing up. Um, I am trying to stay in my heart, focused to the frequency of what I think both spirit and the medicine wants to communicate. How does it want to be? Mm -hmm. How does spirit and these medicines want to be represented? How can I be that servant advocate for them um, in, in service. And I realized that I could not do that in Spanish as easily. And I didn't know that until I was asked because I grew up in Lancaster County as in a white church. And I realized for the first time that God was English in my head. And I just never thought about it because I can speak Spanish and I can think in Spanish and I can hear it, but like, I don't, switch between English Spanish that often, but I hadn't ever had a moment where I had to think about God. And I was like, oh, I don't know that I could speak about God in the way that I want in Spanish. And it was this moment where I was able to say, Hunt, thanks for this invitation. It's opened up something for me. And I spent several months going into ceremonies, looking at what does it now mean to decolonize um, Christianity for me? And that my, my, um, it seemed like my heart language was English when it came to the divine. That was a surprise to me. Um, 
And so I did a series of ceremonies in which um, it came through. And at one point I um, was in a ceremony and I had both a rosary, which is a much longer story, but is a um, uh, sort of an edgy thing for me as a Protestant to own. But I was trying to um, practice rewilding that and and sort of maybe some of my ancestors had participated. And so I was trying to do some ancestral work. So I thought, OK, well, maybe I'll connect with that. Um, I've been doing it for mm, about six months and it, had, it wasn't really sticking. I was like, okay, but I'll, I'll keep trying. Maybe, maybe it'll open up lots of years of patterning of not having a relationship. It's going to take more than a week to, till it means something. Um, so, but I took it into the ceremony with me and I have a little, a little rattle that's like an egg and I had them both. I must have, I don't remember in the ceremony when I picked them up, but there was this moment and I was sitting and it was like this prompt of the spirit said, look down. And I looked down and in my left hand, I had the rosary and it was wrapped around my left hand. And my right hand, I had the rattle. And I could all of a sudden look down and I could feel energy circling between the left and right hand and going through my body. And it was a first moment that I realized the reason I wasn't connecting as much to the rosary is that deep subconsciously, to the item around, that that was still a symbol of colonization to me. Hmm. And I didn't know that until I was in that moment, right? And so um, I think that um, what had happened in that moment is to understand, okay, I could look at that from a psychological point of view or academic point of view. Okay, now how do I go about decolonizing it? But what happened to me in that ceremony was beyond that level. In that feeling of the energy connecting, I knew from that experience that my you want to call it my genetic soul line, always had access to the divine, always, whether I'm choosing to express it through Christianity and my ancestors may have expressed it through ingesting some of these same plants. I have always, and my family line has always had access to the divine. And I believe that's true for everyone, but I can only speak to my own experience, right? And so that fundamentally began a radical decolonizing of Christianity far more than um, all the books I've read on it beforehand. It took it from the academic, you know, um, experience into my body somehow is not feeling this as attention. And yet there's something there to explore and understanding where do I find the power to understand what that is. Fast forward eight months from that moment, I was in a um, at a retreat and we were doing a cacao, so non-psychedelic. It was, you know, cho a special chocolate. It's tied to the ancestor and my personal ancestry. And um, the facilitator asked me to do a blessing over the cacao. We we're gonna ingest it and do some breath work. And uh, I said, thank you. And I came up and um, I, you know, was over the stove and the, the smell of the chocolate. And, and I looked at the people and I was the only person who was Spanish speaking there. And, you know, it's like, it like, oh, I just like got into that moment, right? Into the body, into the moment, opened my heart spirit. And I started praying and out comes the prayer in Spanish. I, I prayed for three, four minutes. I was out of the way. I was out of the way. It showed me that it was like, I, I can hold the frequency of understanding God. I, I, I have the linguistic skills. My heart and my spirit have the pathway and know it. All I have to do is get into the body and not get that fear get in the way i was able to express it and it was a revolutionary experience for me right i feel like oh, oh my goodness i was able to do that um and what a healing that was a healing that i didn't know i needed right and so for me a lot of this work is healing on things that 
you won't necessarily know to bring up in a therapy session. You won't necessarily know to say, I'm going to sign up for a retreat to work on that. But if, you know, from my perspective, you trust the spirit and you trust the medicine, the plants, good facilitators, good containers are key to this. And if that you have that safety, then there's an ability to explore deeper areas. That is like, to me, this is like the, the deepest part of healings that then really open up your freedom in another way. If I wanted to say, I'm going to read all the books and I'm going to take all the classes and all the, you know, things to be able to like, you know, preach in Spanish, I'd probably have a great go at it. That's a good, that's a good in Denver. But for me, having that lived experience and that putting myself in that moment was a healing that sort of mm-hmm. um, James Finley, who's also um, associated with the Center for Action and Contemplation, who's amazing. He said, the mystic puts themselves in the position to have an experience with God, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that that's a lot about when we come into Mm -hmm. these ceremonial spaces, whether it's with water, roses, cacao, uh, psilocybin, whatever it is, it's that putting ourselves in the position for something to happen. And that's technically what we're supposed to be doing on Sunday morning when we go to church. What I love to do in sharing this is sharing the opportunity of, we get to have these personal experiences. We get to sort of take all the things that we've experienced we've been exposed to, we get to mix them up in ourselves and come out a, a new creation. We get to have this new birth for ourselves. And, yeah. um, and so what I have really would love to sort of pivot over to hunt and talk about, you know, I've been saying, oh, I had these experiences in a church. And what does that sort of mean um, about the power of what it is in the work that we're doing, particularly at Ligare, of sort of saying, yeah okay, um, you know, I'm not the only one. I think um, someone asked me once is like, what is a, what is a psychedelic Christian? Is that, can you put those two things together? Um, and I was like, um, I think so. I was like, yeah, actually we already exist. Cause like, I'm already here. Like, you know, like, it's not like we're waiting. Can we invent this thing? It's, it's happened. It's, is it true? Someone says, is it truth? It's like, yeah, I can say it's true because I'm true. My expression of it. Now, how we extrapolate that across all institutions and people, that's what we're trying to do with Ligare. But there's, you know, for me, I like to stand for the fact that we can claim, I feel comfortable claiming that I am a Christian, a psychedelic Christian, um, because I am those things. And I get to say who I am and determine what that means. Now we get to decide there's more than one of us. There's a few of us. There's, you know, and then and there's clergy. <laughs> we're even like we're even more lucky we got some clergy on our. And so then, you know, how we found each other. And that's what was really exciting. I was doing this work for about four years before I got to meet Hunt. And then um, we were connected through a mutual friend. And I aligned to say yes and support his amazing vision of what it would be like if it's not just me over here, as amazing and important it is for every individual to experience their fullest liberation. What would it be like if there were more of us? We joined that power together mm. and we could accompany each other and we could we could we could, you know, both integrate together and dream together. And if we there were enough of us, could we really influence the church? Could we influence the church? Could we um, improve it? Could we expand it? Could we soften? Could we help it heal? And so all of those questions were burning and bubbling up in my soul. And um, spirit divine and a really good friend um, combined where (laughs) I got to meet the reverend (laughs) and priest. And there was like something, you know, that, you know, the, in my language, you know, the divine is up to something when multiple things are popping up, right? Because when something wants to birth itself, it doesn't come to one person. 
it comes to multiple people. And it's about each person. I'm living my vision and my lived expression from my own life of what it means to be a psychedelic Christian. Hunt's going to live his, other people living theirs, and all of us together is what births a new thing. And so Ligare and the work that Hunt and the vision and the boldness Hunt had to say, I want to step away from a formal um, parish to take care of, to pull together a group of people who are, who are moving around the globe and say, what would it be like if we come together and try to make a change? So I'm going to pass it off to Hunt to share his amazing vision that I have Thanks, decided Jessica. to be like, I'm all in for it. But I met yeah. Hunt, I was like, whatever you need, I'm in. And so um, Hunt, share your vision with all of us. Oh, well, I, and this just came up yesterday. So this is, pro, I mean, I'm. the vision is to connect, is to really connect these individuals and communities to each other and to the church and to God as revealed in Jesus for Christians. And there's other, there's Jewish organizations, um, there's small Muslim organizations, but Buddhists. So, but this is the Christian conversation, not mm-hmm. the, the exclusion of others, but in the Christian conversation. And just yesterday, this group in California, uh, close to Sacramento, I think, that's kind of a suburb of Sacramento, had been meeting. They were doing psychedelic work individually and they were in a group and all of a sudden one of them said, uh, this may not be what everybody wants to hear, but I'm actually a Christian. And then somebody else said, uh, so am I. So they, they've been meeting as a group of about eight or nine people doing psychedelic work together from their Christian perspective and their Christian background, various uh, manifestations of that. And they've been doing that. And they saw me or heard me on a podcast. So then they're like, oh, wow, there's others. And so I had this fantastic conversation with them yesterday. And it's just emerging. It's like emerging like Mushroom Emerge or like the early church, which was a network of loosely connected communities. They were all trying to figure it out in their own places. So wherever they were in in, uh, the Greek world or in the the Mm -hmm. ancient Near East, they were trying to figure it out. So that's the model, I think, for this is both the mycelial network that mushrooms have Mm. to connect with each other and to feed each other and take care of each other and the early church, which was a loose configuration of communities uh, connected to each other, but uh, feeling called by the risen Christ to be themselves in the world. So the vision is, I think just what I just said, uh, loosely connected communities of people because Christianity is diverse. And we know that sort of intellectually, but as a friend of mine on the board, my friend Tim Tutt says, there's multiple Christianities. Mm-hmm. And so what, Jessica's experience of psychedelics through is going to be filtered and seen through her lens of Baptist, Pentecostal, evangelicalism, and her social justice work. Mine's going to be seen through my Episcopal formation and my priestly ministry and me and my own experiences. And that's all beautiful because we have this diverse experience of God in Christ. And so there's no, there's not going to be one way to do Christian psychedelics because there's no one way to do Christianity. We need to respect each other, our different paths. Um, Pentecostalism, I think is, I think if we could really embrace the teachings of Pentecostalism and the, the early Pentecostal movement in the early church, certainly the first Pentecost, but then the Azusa street movement in, in the U S that was an inbreaking of the Holy spirit that was uh, led by women. And it was a, people of color there was all of the vision of the early church came to manifest in that movement and then it hit american culture which is kind of male dominated and white dominated and 
this we have to be right and you have to be wrong that's what happens in these movements so for the mm-hmm. christian psychedelic movement to embrace all of it and say there's not one way to do this let's learn from each other let's be safe let's keep god and christ at the center of this and and let it let it come up through us that's the vision i i don't know we're sort of in a way making it up as we go and that we don't really know what where this is headed uh but we know it's if we're if we're together and we keep risen christ at the focal point and trust each other and trust god i think sky's the limit so mm-hmm. what's why psychedelics why psychedelics what why like what's the nature of psychedelics that's so unique why not breathing in a cave or well, sex of, magic or something well all of it but i think but i think psychedelics is i think i've heard bill richard say this at hopkins is it's reliable it's safe and it gets you there and i didn't have time i frankly didn't have time to go spend 40 days on a meditation mm-hmm. retreat I, mm-hmm. I, I could have gotten there lots of people in monastic communities are having these experiences some mm-hmm. are and without psychedelics because they're they've got this taste and time and predilection to do that i'm mm-hmm. I don't and i i do my, my meditation and prayer practice is so much deeper now than it was before psychedelics. So I came back to the things I've been trying to work on without them. Mm-hmm. And I've deepened my, I just, I'm a different, I'm totally different Christian than I was. I'm a different priest because now I actually honestly believe in my body, what I've been saying out of my head and through my mouth mm-hmm. about the power of healing, about the power of laying hands, mm-hmm. about the power of meditation and prayer. I talked about it and did it sometimes by rote. And now I really understand that in, that there's a transfer of energy that happens between me and the person on whose head on on whose head i lay my hands mm-hmm. something's happening well and this this thought comes to mind about something maybe you and i talked about hunt but that that if if somebody is going to lead communities of people in a religious context they they need to have had a religious experience and how often the leaders don't I mean I, I've said this story before and I want to plant this seed here. There was a time where I uh, a friend died, and I went to the church. It was a a Bible oriented church, and the minister was saying, first of all, it was a suicide, mm-hmm. and so th- there were complexities about how the Christian church makes sense of suicide. And this church was notably very fundamentalist. And, and what the preacher said was, never go within, always go to the book, and spoke of heaven as this like music-filled streets of gold and all these images. And I, I, it's such a problematic worldview that, that we're, it's essentially creating a dependency on the institution itself, un- unaware of the fact that it's a manipulative approach. And I don't want to speak so. So, back to this question that I was asking about what the what the problem is. It it sounds like both of you are, and I'm totally in alignment here, are are saying that the unique lived experience of an individual is positioned as some kind of godliness as opposed to a dependency on an institutionalized form. Sure. Fair to say. Yes. So sure. why would the experience of the disciples or of Paul or the, you know, the early church, why would their experience, they had experiences, whatever they yeah. were. We value those so much that we put them in the book. Why, 
Paul's no different from me. The disciples are no different from Jessica. Our experiences are as valid as theirs. And we have the benefit of knowing more about the nature of the human person, the nature of the cosmos, and we have scientific knowledge that really can come to bear on something like suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, that suicide is a, is depression that I mean, we, it's not a sin. It's a medical condition. Mm-hmm. The person is affected by it. that. Had nothing to do with anything the person did or didn't do. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and so to, yeah, I mean that, and, and the church has generally changed its theology of suicide. So when you hear that, it just makes like God the damage that's done to that family and the people that come to that, the people that have, are dealing with depression are then told not to go in, when uh, which is where we really have to do the work. Mm-hmm. Jesus, who went in by getting away from all those people that wouldn't leave him alone, mm-hmm. he went to the wilderness, or went to the a quiet pray, place to pray to go in, yeah, be with God. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God is, yeah. So I'm that oh that makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's such yeah. Da- so damaging. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is also this idea of, uh, you know, where, where you're just saying where the authority is. And it's it's mm-hmm. it's nervous for a clergy person to be like, you mm-hmm. know, like, which is part of the work that we're doing with Ligari is trying to explain these to clergy. You know, the, the you know, Hunt's, you know, part of his service in this is explaining to clergy so they can understand when someone comes to them and says, I've had this experience. It's hard for them if they haven't had the experience to give them right counsel. Right. I know that I've found it personally really. I relaxed a lot when I got into a relationship and knowing Hunt, because I kind of was like, I could bring up something. I'm like, I think it might be kind of on the edge. For me, it was an edge on where's shamanism? Where's Christianity? I like, where's the line? I'm working mm-hmm. my way through. It's kind of nice to have some other people because I do want some sort of healthy spiritual accountability. I don't need him to be like, slam me down and give me a rule. But can I talk about this? Can I say that there's an edge? Um, where are you? How are you working the edge? How have you come to understand that? So a lot of the work that we're doing in Ligari is to opening up these questions of having people, you know, I, you know, I was sharing, I was recently in a circle, I was helping, I had over six people in a circle, you know, 12 people come to me and they were like, um, this, you know, this works, like, you know, it's really powerful, I'm doing deep healing, and, um, you know, but uh, I, I don't know how to tell my Christian aunt, or my Christian uncle, or my mom, and people were like, they're afraid to talk to the Christian in their life. And that yeah. is like, we ch- sort of chuckle. And yet like that breaks my heart. I was like, what has happened? That the that like, as Christians, we should be the people you want to talk to. We should be the most open-hearted and listening. We are commanded to love one another. Like there's nothing else we should be doing here except that and figuring out how to express that love in ways that stand on the side of the oppressed and bring liberation for those who need it that's i don't know what you're doing if you're not doing that we're working our way to understanding that and making it more complex but it is that simple and so people have that both they don't know to talk people don't know how to talk to other christians in their life people don't know how to talk to their to their clergy members you know i had to figure out i negotiated where my spiritual boundaries were with my facilitators because i also was in containers that were not christian I was the only Christian. They were probably anti-Christian, to be honest. A lot mm-hmm. of people have a lot of hurt. A lot of people mm-hmm. who are in this work are actually in the work because they're relieving oh, organized yeah. religion. And so I had to be like, hey, this is where you can work with me. These are the things. I had this, this big negotiation with a facilitator who I trusted deeply, who said, well, maybe you should, you know, set an intention to, um, you know, understand your divinity or understand that you were God. And I was like, ooh. I, I am not God. Like, theologically, I am I am not God, and I will never be God. 
you know, that is a hard no for me. And we had to negotiate that because that's where I am. I said, however, I was able to work um, and talk about my boundaries with that. And I said, but I was able to set an intention of to allow myself to to get um, a deeper awareness of the divinity through me, through that is given to me by my, through Christ, you know, and that's as a Christian, right? And I had an expansive experience. Story for another time, I experienced true incarnation and I got to experience resurrection. It was mm. beyond <laughs> potent in mm. one night, like, you know, but that was, but so I had to learn to negotiate that. I didn't have anyone to talk to about like, hey, how do I figure out to tell a facilitator where my spiritual boundaries are? I didn't have a, a, a priest or pastor to be like, how do I understand shamanism in the way? And how do I understand that that is actually part of my own spiritual heritage? You know, that's something I'm working on. Talk about decolonizing Christianity, you know, that, that the spiritual expressions that we have through our ancestry, you know, are much more shamanistic. And we carry that and we carry abilities and talents in that. What does that mean? How do I, how do I reconcile that? Do I need to reconcile that? How do I accept that? All of these things are places. These are the type of conversations we're trying to seed and create space for some resources where people can say, are you considering, you know, having a, an experience like this? Here are things to talk about. You know, how do you talk about your Christianity? How do you talk about what the, your borders are? People have very little experience about how to share their faith. I'll be honest, I, I do this professionally. We are not good, particularly in America and particularly as Christians in having conversations about our faith. We aren't, we aren't given that. Some evangelicals do apologetics, but it's a very confrontational. It's like, let me prove you wrong. It's not story sharing. You know, I told someone at that meeting, I said, you do not have to preach psychedelics, but you can learn to advocate, to tell a story that advocates for your healing. If you're trying to connect with someone, you don't have to convince them about the psychedelic. You don't have to convince them about your breath work. You don't have to convince them about your yoga, but you can learn to share a story where you're advocates for your health. That's where you're going to connect. You're talking to someone who their Christianity is core to their identity. And that's how you view them. That's you think it's core to them. And you want to have this conversation with them. Talk about your healing. Cause we do, we do in general, even though you can get pretty, you can get some pretty strict people out there, but healing will soften most people's hearts. We're all trying to get it in some form. And so part of the work that I do is helping people understand how do we have conversations about our faith? This is not a natural thing for me that I did not grow up thinking I'd want to do this, being on a podcast. I'll tell you, know, I had this, this, this moment four years ago um, where I was doing some archetypal work your union mm. uh, father richard war was 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 uh, i i was reading a lot of his work as i said i was in a container we were traveling and um we were setting intention and it said think of someone that you admire um deeply and so father richard war came up to my mind really quickly I was like first thing so you go with the first thing and it's like what do you think that person has that you don't and i said like, oh that's a question right so i sat with that you know i was working with a partner and for Richard Rohr, it was me. I, for me, that moment, it was like he had, for me, I was like he had to took a singular vow because of his vocation. And he's organized his life around that. And that's what I felt he had that I didn't have, right? Because I'm trying to like build a justice movement, pay my rent, pay off my student debt, mm -hmm. be happy, take care of my family. Like I, I feel in my head at the time, I thought I don't, he has the ability to live his singular vow and I do not because of my life context, right? So that was the duality I was in. So then 
process goes on. All right. So sit with that. And it was the vow that got me. He had a vow and an ability to build a life around the vow. So going into the archetypal work, I was then invited by spirit to say, why don't you work at embracing the bride archetype for this, you know, ceremony that I was going in? Not my natural inclination. Um, I'm not very bridey. I'm not actually married. I don't have anything against brides, but brides are not like where I go. Right? It wouldn't be like, yes. I was like, oh, bride. Okay. So I was like, but you know where your stretch is, is where you're supposed to go. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm good for following a process. Make long story short. I go through it. I, you know, I'm, I travel across the world. I'm in a, I'm in a, in a another place. And um, I need to claim that I'm going to embody the, the archetype of the bride. And I get up to, to say it. And I say priestess. I don't say bride. Everybody in the room knows I'm the bride. And I say priestess. And they're just like, great. Do move on. And then we were walking up to a sort of a sacred well in the country we were in. And um, I'm walking up. And I'm getting rustling in the spirit. I was like, why did I do Like, my heart is not okay. I know that I have violated something. I knew I was coming as the bride prepped as the bride. And I said this thing, I was like, what was that? And the group kind of went ahead and a light mist starts falling, you know, it's all very dramatic, climbing up a hill. And I, so I, I asked, I asked, you know, God, I said, what is the, why is the bride? Why do you want the bride? I don't understand this. And well, basically it's weird saying why the priestess. And it was like, I was like, I don't want to be the bride. It's like, <laughs> and the divine said, I don't need any more teachers. I don't need any more teachers. Like, but what I do need are people that can that the word was flashy, which is why I use flashy. I need was fleshy love. That's what I need. It's like, what is it about the bride? The bride is not embarrassed to show her love in public. I came undone. Mm. Heart open, sobbing the whole way up to the holy, you know, is going to sacred. Well, I got there and I said, yes, I took vows. I told God, I say yes, I say I do, mm. I say I'm here, right? Then I was sitting on this hill, very nice countryside, and literally a flock of sheep kind of come and start, walk by me, start to surround me. So I'm processing this really big moment. And I hear again the prompting of the spirit. Remembering in Peter, it said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And that is the story that I went back to when Hunt asked me to join Ligare, I thought, do I really believe in the institutional church? Am I really going to use my energy to sort of save and try to transform it? And that moment, feed my sheep, which in scripture was like, serve my people, right? And so all of working that archetype came into being able to be here talking about, I say, I love the divine and I love this work. And it's a passion of mine to do. That is as a result of this work. That is a result of this work. If you met me 10 years ago, it would have not been that, you know, because I'm able to hold who I am and express who I am because I felt that in my body and I was invited into that process. And I think that that kind of goes to where we were going in the question of, you know, why psychedelics? And the other thing we often hear is, well, isn't this a shortcut? Isn't this a shortcut, you know, uh, to your mystical experience? <laughs> Um, and there's different reactions to it. When someone says, isn't this a shortcut to me? I want to see why are they asking that question? Are they, are they interested in mystical development? Are they trying to understand my process? And for someone like that, I usually talk and share that we all come into life and into this work with very different experiences. We have different bodies. We have different pressures. 
we have different contexts in which we live in. We have different pressures on our nervous systems. You know, um, we have different relationships to power and our proximity to power. We have different experiences about our um, the impact of white body supremacy on our on ourselves. You know, I'm a Latina. I've experienced it in some way, but I also have not. My proximity to whiteness limits me, and other than other my black sisters and brothers and siblings. Um, have different experiences. Um, you know, all of these things that we were coming into, how do we arrive to a ceremony? And what was really life-changing to me about working with the sacred plant medicines is it allowed me to get out of the mind, but allowed me to get into the body and allowed my nervous system to relax and surrender. I wouldn't have gotten into the mystical experience had I not been able to come into myself. Had I not been able to realize that I am abundance, and to find that that is good, to find that I am good. You know, Resma Menachem, you know, if you do work with him, you will constantly say, you are not defective. And when you're in a group of people, you know, I've studied with him um, of, of bodies of culture, which is what he calls, you know, people who are non-white, bodies of culture, just to not focus the whiteness, bodies of culture. And he says, you are not defective. You will see people will start to cry. Will cry because, there is a pressure of not, of perfectionism, of trying to fit in. For me, powerful assimilation, you know, trying to be the mm. perfect, trying to be the great Latina, you know, trying to be the best in school. All of that comes in when you rock up to the, to the, to the ceremony. You know, you're bringing all of that, even if you're not conscious. And so having the psychedelics drop me into the body and beginning to experience the the fullness and the possibility and deep levels of healing the body, then open the door for me to have a deeper mystical experience. So I don't find that that's a shortcut. I find that the body work is the almost the prerequisite. It's the way of being able to come in in a way that I would have to process a whole lot in years of therapy to be able to get ready to, to do all of that and might not ever have the languaging to express it, um, that psychedelics opens the door and eases that process in. Hmm. So that's kind of one answer. And then the other answer, depending on if the person's like comes from the, it's a shortcut and they kind of want me to earn and they kind of want me to be like, you can't get there before me. Um, it's not in a generous sort of aspect. I often say to them, maybe some of us are do a shortcut. Maybe some of us are do that shortcut. And can we take this idea of a shortcut and flip that into a conversation that some of us are do a shortcut and maybe this is the beginning of actually having a justice conversation. Maybe this is the beginning of actually having a reparations conversation. Is this the beginning of having an equity conversation? So no matter what we're talking about, um, particularly in the Christian church context, I like to say that this is the opportunity to open saying, where are we gonna land on psychedelics? It to me, it's either here nor there. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do anyway. Um, it is more about what are we going to reflect and how is this going to improve or open or add liberation to those of us who are in the church, right? So to me, this, it's a perfect opener to get through because wanting to earn and being sort of feeling a way about someone getting a shortcut is really rooted in white supremacy. It's really rooted in overwork. It's rooted in, and you know, for me and others, it's rooted in like, actually a lot of these technologies and, and thing, they were part of our history. You, you actually came to our shores and killed us because we understood the divine this way. And so guess what? It's mm -hmm. not a shortcut. It was actually mine to begin with. You're <laughs> actually taking the shortcut, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, there is the coming back 
of like what that Hmm. really means and how do we do that in a loving and challenging way. But for me, that's another thing. As much as I love the experience and the spiritual development thing that happens with psychedelics, I'm here at Ligare and working alongside Hunt because I think it's a perfect opportunity to have these conversations. We don't often, I do a lot of work for social justice of get trying to get people to vote, trying to combat bad immigration, you know, policies. Um, and those have, those appeal to certain types of people. You know, you get a different type of person and different types of feeling when they want to talk around psychedelics. So I love that we're having a, a conversation about something that people have questions for. I love that you're like, is that a shortcut? Let me explain how not necessarily a shortcut, or maybe I'm due for a shortcut, you know, but let's have the conversation. Let's get beyond the thing. Let's talk about healing, regardless of the modality. You know, we all have big theologies of healing. Let's talk about healing. You know, I, frankly, I experienced a really big divine healing, and it became the biggest secret in my life. Biggest secret. I had a pretty serious medical diagnosis, and I no one ever knew. No one ever knew. Because I felt uncomfortable that I got the di- I got I got the miracle healing, and someone beside me with the same diagnosis was not getting that. And I was like, and I had no way of explaining the difference of my experience to their experience. Part of the work I did in psychedelics helped me loosen that. You realize I don't have to explain the mystery. It's not up to me. And that's the same with the psychedelics. I don't actually have to explain the mystery of it all. You know, I we can just partake of it and recognize that it is a kind mystery. Christianity in and of itself is a mystery. So we have to be able to get comfortable with the mystery and talk about, talk about those mysteries. Why is it that, why are we talking about healing? Why is some people get some form of it and others? And then what's the psychedelic approach to that? That I think is the most healthy way to start having these conversations versus having them in the vacuum. Let's not make a decision about psychedelics and then about real healing. And then about like, you know, let's not, let's not label it. Let's not go into the duality. Let's go into the complexity. Um, and we have the tools, the institution, and we have people who can guide us through these conversations. Well, what'd you hear in that, huh? <laughs> Gospel. Hard truth. Yeah. Hard, hard, yeah. hard truth. Yeah, and uh, and I, I, that that all of it, but that part about this is our medicine to begin with. This is our side. Yeah. This is our access to the to God to begin with. And I think there's in in in, in indigenous communities, my my sense of it, and some limited exposure, but people I've known is there's a generosity. Yes, I think a lot of people in South America and other and in this in the U.S. with other are want. I mean, Maria Sabina in Mexico wanted this mm-hmm. to be available. So, uh, and I, another way I've heard that, aren't, aren't some of us are doing a shortcut, is isn't life hard enough? Right? Exactly. It's for many, 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 and coming out of the quarantines and the fractured mm-hmm. politics and the climate crisis, life is hard and damn it, life is hard. And so, okay, I don't think it's a shortcut because I think it's hard work. Psychedelics are hard work. It's not easy. It's not easy. No. <laughs> hard stuff comes up and your body. I mean, it's just hard, but God almighty, it's, it's hard to, it's right now, it's hard to be alive. Mm-hmm. And so to be, to be able to do it, to be able to have some insights into God, into ourselves, mm-hmm. into the nature of life is a gift. And I don't, I don't see the indigenous communities putting a fence around it. Like, mm-hmm. like Europeans, mm-hmm. like, like, like people look like me 
But yeah, and I think the fact is is that it that it's also so there's like the 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 quick and pithy shortcut conversation, and then there's this idea of containers and what reciprocity looks like. What does justice look like? What does eco justice look like? These the you know a lot of these substances are coming from the earth, and we're not taking great care of the earth. You know, um, what does indigenous reparations and reciprocity look like? What does the container? But so it's it's like how how can we we start with the shortcut conversation? How can we expand it? And how can we expand it? even further to make sure that we're encompassing all, all of the best lived values that we want to have, right? Um, how do we prioritize um, who has access to medicine? Let's not have the access conversation replicate the um, the dominance um, towards the privileged. I, I will admit I, I'm able to do this work because I'm able to travel, you know? And I'm able, I have access, I've been able to get funds to be able to go and do that. And it's it's not been an, um, an easy or it has not been an inexpensive adventure. Um, and um, and so how do we, how do, how do we make it, democratize it? How do we, you know, bring the best of the church as buildings, people, um, land, resource? Like we have, it's not like we can't figure out how to find a place in most most um, places in the United States where uh, a circle could begin. We got churches. I work with clergy around voting, you know, and I was like, we actually got clergy in most places where people are voting. We we, we have a base um, and we have resources. And so how can um, opening the doors of those resources actually be a way of decentering whiteness, of realigning the values that we really want to have and showing up in solidarity with with for, with ourselves, even beyond um, just sort of the quintessential racial um, ad, and um, dynamics, but showing up for each other's people, you know, showing up. We have been, as Hunt was saying, we've been separated um, through both the pandemic and um, and everything that's happened. And so, I think that um, the ability uh, that the church has is that it does have a model of a small um, that that's able to come around. It has a local context. When we do have mega churches and some of those, and they have their kind of a different, different um, model, but there is a local context, and so I think um, you can enter into this work, um, whether you are a person of color or not, um, with a deep respect for the locality of where you are, what's local to the place where you are, and the medicines and the plants and the um, the fungi and the mushrooms that you're working with. Get to know a little more about them. Um, you know, resource it properly. There's so many opportunities, just like there's so many opportunities to make a small step to help climate change. There's so many opportunities to make a small step, which we'll call psychedelic justice. So let's make sure that we don't keep this as just a spiritual conversation. We can actually bring it to, we can live out our spiritual values by making this a justice conversation in which we can all participate in these circles and build justice. We can make a decision about where we rent to go. We can make a decision about who we buy our chocolate from. We can make a decision, like all of these opportunities are to live, you know, all of that. And so I think that um, we can make it more complex and the complexity actually makes it easier for us to make small steps of towards yes, more small steps of like, hey, I'm being intentional. Might not be perfect, but I know I'm being intentional here and I'm seeking to learn more. That open heart, that teachable heart. And that's why um, so many of the indigenous communities are so welcoming because they have that openness of heart and let us let us meet them with that that uh, level of intentionality. Definitely. Right. I, there's a thought that I was having about this tension between 
the personal and the private mm -hmm. dimensions of these experiences and then the need to bring those into community and mm -hmm. how Absolutely. you know i think about that image of, of moses you know on the mountaintop you know whatever in the hell moses was doing up on that mountaintop i'm not quite sure but it seems appropriate for this conversation and then he comes down and says oh hey by the way folks i know how we can all live together let's have one voice let's have uh, you know don't fuck each other don't kill each other don't steal from each other don't you know like, let's let's get clear here but so so we have these it seems to me that we have these opportunities for the inner journey and, mm -hmm. and you know, to go inward in a, a community. But, but there are, to your point, Hunt, about these mycelial networks, as soon as the communities get large enough, they start to fragment and, mm -hmm. and some other objective comes online. So I'd love to hear you both talk about this, the idea of balancing these intensified personal and private experiences of divinity and the need for us to bring those personal and private experiences into a community. So just launch that. I'll also let me, as somebody who's been leading congregations for 16 or 17 years, one of the frustrations I've had is that so often we don't bring our true honest selves into whether it's Sunday morning, everyone says everything's fine. Yeah. And I knew damn well that they <laughs> Right. And they were often for me. There were things that were, you know, my wife was sick for a long time. There were, and I would just say, oh, yeah, everything's great. And uh, so there's something about that can happen in small groups that can't happen in a big group, which is you really can develop a level of trust where you can really be honest and say, you know what, this is, it's really terrible. Mm -hmm. And and I could use your prayers or I could use a casserole or I, I could use you to just yeah. know what's going on. So getting honest, getting real and the church at its best does that. We really do do that. And, uh, and we have the potential to do it better. So, and if church is not about a place where you can share your own experiences of God, sadly, we've made it about the priest or the preacher and his or her experience of God. Is it really the one that matters? And that's as much as I'd love to push back on that and try to from time to time. It's like pe we've, we've trained people so much to say, well, your experience is secondary because I've got the education or I've got the mm -hmm. position. And I think the, the, the more we can flatten all of that out, yeah. the model of church, our architecture kills us because we put the preacher up high, mm. the altar up high, and it makes people forget that we're all in this together. So if we could actually, I think, that in, gather around the altar in a Catholic church or an Episcopal church where there's a Eucharistic, you know, any community that has a Eucharistic theology, actually stand together around the table instead of boxing it off like we do. Mm. It's mm -hmm. the priest. So the more we can make this any anything, any spiritual community, uh, psychedelics can help with this, a place of honesty, a place of storytelling that I can tell my experience that may be helpful for you because it's may connect with your own story. And then to do that in a local community and then let it be connected to other communities. And mm -hmm. that's that's really how change happens. That's how healing at its best happens that way not it happens in community the church for the last 300 years until recent time invested resources in hospitals and training doctors and nurses because we understood that healthy bodies and healthy souls and have healthy emotions were all connected and then we by because of scale and we turned it over to we turned it over to a capitalist model 
to bring healing. And guess what? It doesn't. It brings more sickness. It brings more. We're less healthy than we were. So I'm not saying I don't want the church to run hospitals anymore, but I'm saying there's we we have a role. We have an important role to play in healing, and we need to claim it. And if that's churches hosting eventually at our camp and conference centers retreats, which I would be my if I got to be in charge of it, that's what we would do. And then people would bring that back to their local communities, and there'd be local circles of people sharing their circles, sharing that. And there's models for that. We have it. So. I'm just so tickled by. Tell, tell me if this is what you're saying. What you're saying is that you wish small groups of churches would facilitate people taking things like psilocybin in community to convene with God and having a place to do the integration work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, I have like a little boy inside of me mm -hmm. that is so affected by this institution that, mm -hmm. and, a, and, a, and a country, you know, a country that has... Been so. so hypocritical around its relationship to this. Uh, what Michael Winkle, Michael Winkleman says that we are in a cult of alcohol. Oh, mm -hmm. oh that we 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 demonstrate when he looks at the substance that a culture is mm -hmm. invested in. So you would look down in Peru and you would say, okay, there's an ayahuasca dynamic, and here's how they facilitate, and here's how they connect, and here's a religious tradition. We, on the other hand, are an alcohol cult, and so how does that? What do we do for healing? What do we do for economics? What do we do for religion? What do we do? So to, to be this young boy who grew up with this odd hypocrisy and looking out and saying, God, you know, they're saying don't do this stuff. And then and yet now to hear about religious traditions that are openly seeking to bring something like psilocybin and the like into their religious structure just makes me giggle. I just <laughs> want to giggle. Let me be clear. I'm not speaking for the Episcopal Church. Even I, I, I wish I could. Those were my words. We're yeah, yeah. We're talking biggest vision. Yeah. Highest vision. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about where you are, John, in Houston. And I have a lot of Episcopal clergy friends there. Uh, yeah. We... The Diocese of Texas, with all of its resources, has an incredible camp and conference center where I've been for lots of conferences. Yeah. And those sorts of things, those sort of places where we've already got you know, this I'm not saying this is going to happen next year, but I'm yeah. saying we can finally do this legally and safely and have all the what we need to do that. God, what a gift it would be for those places to because we've got we've got we own them and the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah we got the infrastructure and we've got people I, like I would love for people that have an experience like we've had mm -hmm. that say, yeah. I, I'm willing to donate. I want to offer three weeks a year to come staff, not as the professional, but as the cook or the person that sits with somebody and holds their hand while they, and just creates the hospitality. And uh. there's models, Curcio and the Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church are models for that where people have an experience and then come back and give to that. So we, we've got it. We've just got to shift our thinking and, and let go of some bad, some really bad information we have about psychedelics. And we have to know that these are not for everyone and we have to keep people safe. It's not, it's not, it's not like taking an aspirin for your headache to go away. Right. Mm -hmm. It opens up a lot and we have to be prepared to deal with what comes. Mm -hmm. Jessica, I saw you writing when we were, you know, going through that. I'm wondering yeah. what stirred. Yeah, he's not writing. Um, yeah, no, what I was doing. Um, yeah, no, I, I, all of that. Yes. And what we're trying to do is build, what are the structures? What are the containers? Or is there yeah. liturgy that's more conducive? Is there a structure? What is the integration? So there's the the um, experimentation phase of where we're at, right? This is sort of a, you know, and in the, you know, arc of this, we're at the beginning, right? We're experimenting, we're figuring out 
um, as it is a movement, you know, we're f trying to figure out. Um, and that's why it's important that people can connect with each other because people who are experimenting can share. I tried this. Yeah. I didn't try that. This is what works. I'm always cautious. It may be that I'm a little more sensitive um, being um, female bodied. Um, you know, I was also like, gee, I don't want to join a cult here. Like I was trying to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, so where like we need to use great discernment, which is why it's important to have a variety of perspectives, variety of Christians, variety of um professionals. Uh, we have a lot of safety training also within um, churches because we have dealt with um, abuse in many mm -hmm. of its forms. Um, you know, so we have to also be able to willing to talk the whole talk, right? Um, and we have experiences on all on, in a lot of these areas. And so the question is, yes, I wholly want all of what Hun is saying. And we can say that because we know we're going to put the work in on creating the safety and structures that are needed for that. Um, and the, and the ability for people to um, this is an opt in. It, all things about about your spiritual life should be opt in. It's invitation, um, and we want to increase access for people to be able to say yes and have a a safe experience and experience that aligns with where their spiritual um, uh, sort of upbringing has has been. Going back to the part of your original question, which is where I was writing, was, um, you know, what does it mean for people to have these experiences and bring them back to community? Yeah. Um, and that's part of where I've been sort of writing about, um, you know, how does this impact our theology making? Um, how does it impact the way that we understand and reinterpret scripture? And who gets to have the power to do that? At Ligari, we're, we're incubating a, a theology uh, sort of working group for people who are interested in thinking about revisiting or expanding um, uh, theological in the academic sense, um, which is important. You know, that's how you do some of the culture change. I've you know, done a lot of culture change work, right? So, you know, we're trying to hit all the levers, institutional church, academia, lived experiences of people with multiple types of um, both social, economic, and um, racial backgrounds. So it's, it's a multi-layered movement, really, what you're trying to do. And for me, I think just from my, my, my rabble rouser in the pew to Hans Priest, um, I think that the question is, how are these experiences um, listened to? Um, when I share that story, if I would go back five years and I was sharing it for the beginning, I, 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 I didn't really need to have a conversation whether you agreed with the substance or not. Um, but if I opened my heart and shared that with you, I just needed you to track with me. I just need you to, to to witness me. I didn't need you to process it necessarily with me or tell me anything about it. Um, so it's the training of people to understand, even in our spiritual spaces, to learn how to be good listeners, to learn how to be good witness. You know, it's part of, um, you know, I could definitely see, you know, making that thought small group facilitators work curriculum workbook about like what would it be like if we actually do start these small groups how would we train the the lay people who are you know running these circles of like how to listen and witness and how do we become better and that'll apply long beyond the stories of what happened in a ceremony right most of us just need to be witnessed in our lives and held um and seen you know, have the goodness seen in us and so i think that there's something also in particular i think for people of color and particularly um, for women who have spoken up in, in institutional Christian spaces, their thoughts have been dismissed for a long time historically. So I think um, in decentering um, patriarchy and decentering whiteness, it's really important. I think we need to overemphasize and overlisten and maybe over curate um, the experiences of people of color and of women in these liminal realms and to consider with discernment, of course, but to consider what is happening there as actual, the same as theological development, to give it the same, because historically, 
um, we, you know, we have been marginalized and saying, well, that's not real. That's not real doctrine. That's mm. not real. You know, that's not real theology making. And um, and so we're coming up. This is a chance to to flip that script and say, we're not really sure where all this psychedelic thing is, but we're not going to do that pattern. We're going to listen and we're going to be really intentional on the way that we listen and that um, and that we will up our discernment. Right. We're going to teach how to be discernment and not oppressive. Right. That's hard. It's hard in a spiritual realm to learn when you're discerning so, something or when you're using the pattern of um, of a, pa- a pattern thinking that can lead to oppression really easily. Unconscious, unconscious bias, as we'll call it. Right. And so let, let's get really um, let's get into that type of process. And let's we should be more sophisticated about it. We have to get have be we have to up the game here if we're going to um, increase the amount of um heart that's open these spirit these substances open your heart and they open up your spirit in a big way so it requires all of us to open up our spirits and our hearts and our intentions towards that person in a big way it, it's not just one person it's 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 the context in which we build for that person to have the experience what would it be like for a, a small group to to send off someone to a ceremony and and the backing that that person would feel you know, knowing they have a home group to come home to, that they know they have people who are holding the frequency, you know, holding the love. Mm-hmm. You know, I had people who I knew were praying for me when I was in these moments. You know, they knew I was going into a retreat and I asked for that prayer. That Those things are important and that builds community regardless of whether someone is participating in ingesting a psychedelic or not. That's just good loving each other in my book. Agreed. I want to be conscientious of our time because yes. we got a, about 10 to 12 minutes. Um, there, there's, uh, there's a lot to circle up on. I mean, this is a, I, I mean, I'm curious. The, the, Jeff Kripal and I spoke, uh, at the, by the time this podcast will come out, my, my interview with Jeff Kripal will have come out. And we talked about decolonization, and you've used that term so much. So that, that's a good thread and a byline in our process. So I, I certainly want to tap on that a little bit, but I also want to just say, as we close, what little threads are hanging out that we need to revisit or bring into our conversation in order for this to feel complete? So, it, uh, Han, I see you nodding your head, and Jessica, you are too. Mm-hmm. Would, would you both just kind of think about, um, you know, maybe you could take maybe five minutes apiece and reflect on this conversation and what you feel needs to be included as we close out. Whoever wants to go first, go for it. Um, I'll start. I may not need five minutes, but um, I think I think the most imp- well one of the one thing that's really important is for for Christians and psychedelic people as well who are not Christian or have animosity toward it. This exists in Christian space because this is spiritual work of healing and transformation. Mm-hmm. And that's the work of the church. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of the work of the church is healing and transformation, both of individuals and of culture. Uh, and so we, the science shows us clearly that these substances used safely and, and cautiously, but safely can bring about tremendous healing for addiction, uh, mm-hmm. uh, depression, anxiety, trauma, fear of dying, things, all of those things the church cares about, Christians care about. And we know through science and research and testimony, not just the science, but through testimony of people, that these do bring that about. 
And it brings it about because people have an encounter with God or the mystery of the universe or the universe, whatever the language is, with, with uh, they have a mystical experience. And so again, if we don't care about healing, mm-hmm. as a church, we don't care about mystical experience, and we don't care about transformation, then what are we doing? <laughs> so, and, and we've embraced new, we've always been willing to embrace new technology. So 50 years of terrible information, politically motivated, racially motivated information has caused, even me, when I saw that ad, I was open, but I only was willing to do it because it was through an institution, a mm-hmm. research institution that cared. I laugh about this, but I was shocked that this, these institutions cared what clergy thought, honestly. So the fact they cared and they wanted our input and it was safe, seemed safe because it was in that setting, I was all in. Otherwise, I'd been so impacted by the propaganda of the war on drugs that I, it wasn't like I hadn't done drugs, but I hadn't done psychedelics because something about that seemed scary. And so, and here I am, a priest in the Episcopal Church in a collar talking about this because it had such a dramatic impact on me. My wife had some dramatic healing from a serious illness. Friends, people I've gotten to know now through psychedelic conversations, committed Christians. This belongs in the church and elsewhere. And so that I think that's the loose thread. I want to. I, there is one hundred percent. It's one hundred percent in the right place, and it should be in other places too. But this is a legitimate place for us to talk about. Wow. And we have we have a lot to offer the movement. We have a lot to offer the movement as the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we can show up as good neighbors, right? To, to everyone in the moment. I hear Hunt and I'm like, yes, right? It's like I'm re-enrolled. This is what I want. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is like, you know. I think for me, um uh, particularly it's the question of, you know, people, it's wrestle. It's like, is this correct? Is there a historical basis for this? Is a is it possible? It's like you know, to have psychedelic Christianity, it's sort of like that if trying to get that yes, no, trying to say, is it right or wrong? That type of those questions, they lead us down a certain type of path that's really going to most likely help us repeat patterns of oppression um, and silencing. And for me, I'm less interested whether there's a historical basis, although there are good arguments that there have been some, um, but I'm not living historically, I'm living now. Um, there's less, um, you know, I'm less personally interested um, in the, is it right or wrong, or I, I'm less personally compelled that I need a, a seal of approval from an external source. That's my independent mm. sort of, I have a direct discerning with the divine that I get to express and the autonomy. That That's the freedom and the liberation I was talking from the flesh faith freedom. That's the freedom. I have the freedom to explore that. Um, but what I'm really interested in and worth the work of Ligare and this movement, it's the how. For me, this is a question of not if or did it. It's like how. It's here. So how does this work together? And I think that just opens us up to all the types of conversations that I like. For me, it's 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 a lens. It's a bit of a, a spiritual lens that now I apply to um, how I see both my Christian path and how I see the possibility that we can build um, a, a movement that um, that is healthier, as Hunt says, and, and displays comes to the best parts of the church, fully recognize um, as much as Hunt has. You know, when you work trying to get the church or clergy to do anything, you see the institutions. You see, you see the underbelly, and you know, and I have worked with people who have had deep spiritual hurts, 
I've been hurt by the institutional church. It's it, the church is a reflection of society everywhere. I, I'd be, it'd be, you probably, if you show up in a room and they're humans and you go there a couple times, something is going to happen. Right. Um, and so we have to learn that that's okay, that there's a comfort. Um, I think that this is the point of it is not a litmus test. You know, it is not a litmus test. Um, and I think that that for me is really important to express it is, I am not any more spiritually endowed for doing it or not doing it, you know? And I think that it's like, we have to, we have to just make sure that we don't let that sort of, um, hard thinking limit us. So for what I want to say is that it's the how let's work together and say how this works out. I think there's a lot more, um, freedom and a possibility and inclusion when we frame the question in that way. So I'd love, uh, you know, us to sort of think and what I want to continue to work in Ligari is like, let's ask good questions. Let's, I would love someone who hears this uh, podcast who may not feel the same way, but like, is there anything that we share today that makes you curious, a curiosity? Let's explore that together. Let's be in good dialogue. And we don't have to come to an agreement, but we can witness each other and I can honor where you're at, you can honor where I'm at, Hopefully we have, we both have a thread that we're making our way to ourselves and through loving ourselves radically, we actually can love the divine better. And that's been the biggest change in my life. When I was able through this work to radically love myself, my ability to love God exploded a million times over. And I thought that somehow loving God was going to like have me love myself more. It was a reverse experience for me. The more I radically loved myself and felt at home, the more I had to give to the divine and to those that um, the divine loves, which is everyone. And so I think that that is, uh, we can find bridges. This is a, a build bridge building opportunity um, as a conversation. So we can uh, hold some space, hold some softness around it and see where your edges are and find someone to have a conversation with and explore it. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being here and for engaging in this conversation. I feel like it's, for me, it's a, a continuation of so many threads, but also the genesis of so many threads. And again, I want to, we didn't get to circle back to this, Jessica, but the em embodied leadership, divine feminine and sacred plant medicine. I feel like we talked around these subjects, but it's, um, it, those are a couple threads I want to continue to explore. We can and, have a uh, second conversation anytime. Good. Excellent. Good. Yes, yes, well, yes. And what what does embodied leadership inspired by psychedelics look like? So I, yeah. I show up different, and as Hunt said, he shows up different. So yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. That's the revolution from the inside. Well, you both, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time to uh, to devote not only to the work that you do in public spaces, but also to the private work that you do that influences how you show up in the world. And thanks for bringing it here today. Thank you, John. You're doing really good work. I mean, your podcast, there's so there's it's a wealth of resources there. Thanks, man. You're doing amazing. You. And that's just that's one little sliver of the work you're doing. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, man.
Oh